Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I just want to start by reading this morning, and uh, then we'll get into the introduction, seeing we did not read this with our scripture reading this morning. But I want to read Romans 15, verses 1 through 6. Uh, that's all we're going to cover here uh, this morning and uh, be able to do that. So, verse 1, Romans 15, says this, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded, one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be with one mind and with one, and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Sometimes when you purchase things or buy things, you know, in, in today's environment, you can look online and, and Facebook Marketplace and places like this have the ability for you to buy things from people in the community. And I can remember, this would have been almost uh, 20 years ago, we, uh, I think on Craigslist, uh, found a piano. It's a time where we were thinking that our daughter uh, would uh, need to have a piano to practice, and so we found a piano. It was over in Joliet. We went and took a look at it, and it was a big old upright grand piano, which means uh, it's a grand piano that's not flat like what you have here on the stage. It's one that is upright, so it weighs about the same, uh, but it is, um, yeah, it's a more compact. It can go up against a wall. We went ahead and bought it for $100, and uh, in just thinking through how I was going to move it, I actually opened it up and looked inside, and there was a number on the inside that said 1910. Now, my question was, was it made in 1910, or is that how much it weighed? <laughs> and we had to get it out by, I can't remember why, but we had to get it out by a certain time period. And so I was looking for somebody to help and I got three individuals to help with that. And they were three junior high boys. And uh, we uh, at the house in Joliet that we were getting it from, there were four steps going out the front door and uh, then a sidewalk. And then we had to get it up into a moving type of truck and then get it to our house and pull it back out again and do the same. I think on that occasion, I was probably the strong one and the three junior hires were valiant in helping with that, but uh, we risked life and limb trying to get it down the four steps out to the street. Our biggest problem was trying to get the thing to roll up into the truck uh, that almost didn't uh, happen. I was thinking about leaving it along the sidewalk there to see if someone wanted to pick it up. But uh, at that point, uh, we were that far. We got it home. 
and got it up to two steps into the house and dropped it off. I was very thankful for the help of those three junior high boys. And I uh, remember when we finally did get an actual grand piano in our house and we still had that upright grand there and the two guys that by themselves moved the grand piano in, I asked them, I said, do you move those type of pianos? I can remember the one guy and he knew I was a pastor. He just said, well, you'll hear words you don't want to hear. We don't move pianos like that one because it was so large. See, in that occasion, both the strong and the weak, you might think of it that way, were necessary in getting that thing moved. And it happened. And so it is when you think about the church, and as the Apostle Paul has addressed this over time, there are people that are strong and weak in the church. And remember this, the occasion changes because sometimes we're weak and others are strong, and there are certain occasions where we're strong and others are weak, but what we do is that we help move along the work of God by His grace, and we're able to accomplish things. And what the Apostle Paul has done in chapter 14 and now here in chapter 15 is he's been going through and talking to the church on how they ought to deal with situations where they may disagree a little bit. Uh, you have uh, in verse 1 of chapter 14 these things that bring doubtful disputations. They're not things that go against direct commandments of God or anything like that, but they're things where we may disagree. One may say, well, we get to do that, and others go, well, we probably shouldn't do that. And you have these discussions in church on whether or not we are allowed to do certain things or not. The Apostle Paul reminded the believers that uh, you need to, first of all, decide whether or not these are things you're going to do because one day you're going to stand in the presence of God. You have the, this understanding as verse number 9 talks about this, that we will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We need to determine whether or not we're going to be able to give a good account before God and say, this was something that I was convinced in my mind that the Lord was convinced that it was okay and that you're going to have to stand before God. So that's really the first issue in deciding whether or not there are certain things I can do or I can't do or I shouldn't do. It ought to be the, the standard that I, one day I'm going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But the second thing that we looked at last week in this uh, section of Romans was just simply this, that the strong bear a responsibility for the weak, that they are to consider them, uh, that they are, in, in verse number 21, it's good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine or anything whereby a brother stumbleth or is offended or made weak. No, you may have a strong uh, feeling about certain things that it's okay to do something, but if it causes someone to stumble or is offended, well, then you've got the responsibility not to be the one that trips them up. You bear that responsibility. But then in chapter 15 in verses 1 through 6, he, he kind of goes and wraps this whole section up. He is going to talk a little bit more about this, but what ought our response to be uh, when we at times are strong, where others are weak, what ought we be doing as a church? Combined together, what ought our goal be 
in deciding what we get to do or what we don't do or these type of things, but what is our major goal as people bound together? And if we were to give a theme to this section, it would be simply this. Believers need God's help to unify to glorify Him. Okay, Believers need God's help to unify in order to be able to glorify Him. Paul reminds the church in verse 1 that the strong are responsible to bear the weakness of the weak. That they are supposed to help them and to lift them up and give them strength and encouragement. See, in verse 1 we have this, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And going through Romans chapter 15 and chapter 14, we've gone through and we've used this term, the weak, multiple times. But in verse 1, this is the first time that people are described as the strong. This is the first time that this word's used. We've gone through the whole of the chapter, uh, chapter 14, and then getting into chapter 15. We've always talked about the weak, but you have these people who are one in the faith and these type of things. And that, but we've never talked about what are these individuals who have a conscience that's free, that has liberty to do certain things. Well, in this case, Paul goes, I'm going to give them a name. I'm going to call them the strong in comparison to the weak. The idea of strong is one who is capable, who has the ability, the freedom of conscience to do something in comparison to, well, those that are incapable. One says it this way, the people who are strong are the ones who are capable in certain practices that are legitimate. The weak are incapable of realizing that Christ has released them from certain ritual observances. See, what you have is that these individuals that are strong were ones that were probably in the church at Rome, uh, Gentiles, people who had not been raised with some of the different ritual observances that the Jews had to follow about certain meats and certain days and these type of things. And so they were kind of free in their mind on whether or not they were allowed to do certain things or not. And so when the Apostle Paul says, for those that are strong, they ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, it's those that are incapable of handling these things. The strong needs to bear up and carry individuals along like that and be willing to go along with them in what's going on. See, the strong does have a responsibility to the weak. There is this problem that happens in many churches where they look at individuals that may have, uh, we would say, uh, practices where certain people won't do certain things, and they look at them and go, I can't believe they're like that. I'm just going to ignore them. That was part of the question in, in Romans chapter 14, that the strong were just simply ignoring the weak. They're of none account. They are to be despised. They're, they're to, to be well, individuals not paid attention to. But here Paul says, no, you have a responsibility as those that are strong to bear up the weak. It reminds us of how the, the Apostle Paul said back in Romans chapter 13, where he talked about the fact in verse number 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. See, we said that the principle here, as far as strong and weak people, is not your knowledge that's in your head. You may understand that there are certain things you can do. There's a freedom in Christ to do certain things. And that is 
Well, you'd be right and accurate in saying these things, that these things are true. But on the other side of it, there's other people that don't quite understand that. And that is where love balances on the other side. It's the whole argument that the Apostle Paul had in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where there was a discussion of whether or not it was okay to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Because there were certain people going, idols are nothing. They're made of stone. They're, they're not really anything. And offering meat doesn't do anything to that meat. The meat's okay. And they understood that from the Scripture. But there were others who in their own mind were going, no, those idols are real things. And from some of them, they had come out of a background where they had worshipped those idols and had experienced some of the power behind those, the devils that were uh, represented by those idols. They had felt the power of that, and they're going, well, you can't eat stuff that's been offered to idols. And in their own mind, they couldn't do that, even though God said it's okay for you to eat any kind of meat and that idols are nothing. And what the Apostle Paul said, there needs to be a balance in the sense that you may know something, but you have to balance it off by love. And in a church, sometimes we may recognize certain things that other people don't. We've looked at the Scripture, understand certain things, but there's someone who's coming with a a conscience that is more sensitive. And we have a responsibility to bear that person up not to tear them down not to say that's foolish no at times we as christians are to help each other strengthen one another this word bear that's there in the sense of the infirmities or the weaknesses of the weak is the word that is used in galatians chapter 6 galatians chapter 6 starts this way brethren if any man be overtaken in a fault ye which are spiritual restore such an one in the spirit of meekness considering thyself also lest thou also be tempted the apostle paul starts off there and goes listen what if you have somebody who actually does fall into sin What's the responsibility for those that are spiritual? Now, you have that term spiritual, and spiritual is not just merely uh, the idea that someone goes, I'm more or better than somebody else, a religious idea. No, it's the person who's right with God at that time. See, someone who stumbled into sin, well, what's the responsibility for that believer to go along and to lift that person up? You know, there's a sense of shame when people sin, or they just need help to get out of that sin. We as fellow believers have responsibility to help each other up when we fall into sin. And Paul then makes that right after that statement, in verse 2, he says this, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The idea there is that you bear a burden for somebody else. Now, later on he says uh, in verse 5, bear you one another, bear you, bear you your own burdens. And the idea there is, is there something lightweight that you can take responsibility for? Do it. But there are certain things that they crush individuals. They're crushed by sin or they're crushed by the situation. Well, what are believers supposed to do? Come along and help them carry that. And so it is when the Apostle Paul gets to this passage in Romans chapter 15, he's saying this, there are some in the church congregation that don't quite believe the same way that you do on matters of doing certain things. 
and they may not have strength to bear up under those things, well, what's the responsibility for us as believers? Not to ignore them, but to help them. To strengthen their faith, not to tear it down, not to, uh, to blast them because they have a different standard than what you might have, but it's the responsibility of believers to encourage and strengthen one another, to help each other along in the faith. And I think anyone that's been here in this room, uh, as far as their Christian life, have had at times individuals who came alongside them and helped them to understand certain truths of Scripture. Help them to understand certain things. And you were thankful for those individuals who came along and strengthened you in your faith. Not ignored you, not uh, just write you off as someone who didn't understand certain things. But no, they came along and helped you to understand what the Scripture said. This is part of the idea of what was even talked about in, in Sunday school, our responsibility uh, to be disciples uh, and disciplers ones that are helping others follow Christ. Well, sometimes it's our responsibility to come along and help individuals to understand certain truths of Scripture, to understand certain ways of living. And so the Apostle Paul starts off here, the strong are responsible to bear with the weakness of the weak. But secondly, you see in verses 1 through 3 this, that every believer is to please their neighbor by building him or her up. I mean, the Apostle Paul ends in verse 1, we're not to please ourselves. You know, it's really easy to please ourselves. We, we don't have any problems trying to figure out what makes us happy. We're not to please ourselves uh, in uh, this sense, but Paul's not simply forbidding the fact that we never do anything that we enjoy. Okay, that's not a pro prohibition saying, don't do anything that makes you happy. There are some people that would take that statement and, and say that. And one has said this, this does not mean that we are never to do anything that we want to do, but that we are never to do what pleases us regardless of our, its effects on others. Okay, that this is not a prohibition on that, that we're not to do things that we enjoy, but be honest, it's not very difficult for us to look after our own things and what we want to do and ignore what might be someone around us that needs help. In fact, Paul goes, let's not please ourselves, but verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for, the, for his good to edification. This idea of the neighbor, you go, well, who is this referring to? In Leviticus 19, uh, with the statement there in verse 18 is that they're to love their neighbor. And you say, well, how are they to love their neighbor? As you would love yourself. And the question comes up, well, who's my neighbor? We went through this when we looked at uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Our neighbor is anyone who crosses our path. Okay, we, we sometimes don't get to define who our neighbors are. You know, think about this, as you've been in your house and you've watched people uh, move in or out from across from you or next to you and that, and you're going, oh, I wonder who's going to move in there. You, you really don't have a choice of who those neighbors are going to be. So it is when it comes to scripturally defining your neighbor, your neighbor is anybody that crosses your path. And you may not have a choice in that at all. And so for us, we need to 
please our neighbors. And pleasing can be a bad term because some people are pleased with gossip, violence, and those type of things. That's not what Paul's talking about. And, and we can sometimes please people to the watering down of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was faced with this all the time in his ministry. Uh, he would go from town to town, and when he would get to town and start preaching the gospel, people would start p- picking up stones to go after him. I mean, there were occasions in his life and his mind where it would have probably been best for him just to keep his mouth shut, not to talk about Jesus, not to do those things. But Paul had gotten to the point where he just simply said this, no, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we looked at the beginning of Romans chapter one, is the power of God unto salvation. It's the only thing that's going to save people, so we need to talk about that. And so Paul, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, said this, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be a servant of Christ. He's just simply saying this, If I went around worried about what people thought about Jesus Christ, I would never do what I should be doing. Or in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, uh, Paul made this statement, but as we were allowed of God to be uh, put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. I mean, sometimes we go, well, my neighbors may not be happy or individuals that cross my path may not be happy with me talking about Christ and putting a focus on him. The apostle Paul said, that's not the type of pleasing I'm worried about. They may not be pleased with it, but I'm responsible to please the one who I serve. But ultimately, what we're supposed to do is that we're to please our neighbor for their good to edification. You say, what's that word edification? It's seen throughout our scripture, and you say, what does it mean? It just simply means to build them up. It's like a building, you're taking bricks and you're putting in bricks and you're building a structure and doing that type of thing. That's what we ought to be doing in the life of other believers is building them up to be someone who looks like Christ. Not like you, okay? Like Christ. And that's your goal in life, that they would be followers of Jesus Christ, that you would be doing things that wouldn't hurt their relationship with Jesus Christ to draw them away from serving Jesus Christ. But you're looking to say, is this something that if I do it, it will hurt them? Or if I do this, will it help them? Will it benefit them? Paul didn't look to please outsiders, but he did worry about those that were in the sense of the body of Christ. He really was concerned about them. There's a passage that we're familiar with, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a passage that we said is a, a, the other passage where Paul lengthily deals with the fact of believers disagreeing on what they get to do. Meat offered to idols. But we forget sometimes how that passage ends. We know the verse that kind of ends it, but we forget that it's in the context of doing things that are building others up, not hurting them. Paul said this in verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. But it it continues, give none offense, neither to Jews nor to Gentiles, nor to the church of God, 
And then verse 33, Paul says this, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. He's simply saying this, I, I, in one case, become all things to all men. And that's not saying that he becomes sinful to reach sinners. That's not what that context means. He goes, to Romans, I become like Romans. To Jews, I'm like the Jews. I, I interact with them on that basis, but I'm trying to get them to follow Jesus Christ. I'm looking to do that. I'm looking to please them in all things, but it's not for my own gain, not for my own profit. It is that some of them may be saved, but then he makes this statement, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. And that's how the whole argument ends in that passage is he's going, I don't look to seek to please men and I'm following Jesus Christ. And he says this, you can follow me because my goal is to look like Christ. And my goal for you is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ too. That you would look like him and that you would be like him. And when the Apostle Paul says that, he says that kind of thing that he says in 1 Corinthians 10, right here in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 3. Because he says, I don't look to please myself, I look to please my neighbor, but then he goes and refers to whom? Verse 3, even Christ pleased not himself. Now you think of anybody in this universe that had a right to please himself it was the God of the universe. He's the author of everything. He created it to bring him glory and to bring him praise and to bring him joy. He created the universe for that. But when he came into his creation and took creation upon him, it wasn't that he came in to, well, get all the niceties of life and get all the things that would bring him joy in this life. No, when he came into this world, he did nothing but take on, as it says here, reproaches. Look at how it's stated there. He says, Christ came and pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. There's a quote of Psalm 69.9. We read that this morning. Actually, the first part of that verse is the zeal of the house of the Lord hath eaten me up. It's a verse used to describe when he went and drove out those that were in the temple, making a profit off of those that were coming in. That was the verse that was connected with it. But then at the end of the verse, he just simply says this, the reproach of people that hated God and didn't like what they were doing. When I showed up on the scene, what happened? It fell upon me. I was the one that was abused. I was the one that was attacked. But it was not for my own gain. It was for the profit of people that I was ministering to. Christ Jesus came into this world to minister to sinners. And he went amongst them. And he was a part of their life. And in his ministering, what you find in Psalm 69, that psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in relation to Jesus Christ. You can take a look at it this afternoon and just look through the rest of the psalm. We didn't read it all here this morning, but that psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament in relation to Jesus Christ. But as you read that psalm, uh, when Christ is ministering, he becomes basically one who suffers abuse from everyone. In the passage that we read this morning, uh, we find out that Jesus, his enemies didn't like him. Surprise, surprise. 
but you find others that you would think would be ones that would be on his side. Verse 8 of Psalm 69, you find that his brothers are against him. That in verse number 11, that basically uh, the psalmist is writing there that the Christ has become a proverb, or we might say this, a joke amongst people. He is one in verse number 12 of Psalm 69 that the rulers are doing him in. And even the drunkards are making a song of him. I mean, when you look at when Christ came into this world, he didn't come in to enjoy all the niceties of it. He came in to please others, to build them up. That's why he was here. He was willing to suffer the reproaches uh, of being the Son of God coming into this world and to take on all of the assaults of individuals upon him. And it was for the sake of ministering to people just like us. He did it for our benefit. He did it for our good. And so for us, as we look at this and we go, well, who should I be pleasing? You're not living this whole life for yourself. You're looking to go, well, how can I help others out? Well, you know, that's a really tall task that I have to be responsible for other people. Well, Christ, the God of the universe, came in to please others, to build them up, and was willing to suffer harshness and cruelty and reproach in his service to God. And so we need to be reminded of this, that sometimes as we uh, go about and we try and minister to other people, uh, it's not going to always be easy. Do you realize sometimes when you minister to other people that they're going to attack you? They're not going to be nice to you. And you're going, well, fine, I'm just not going to try and help that person out anymore. And the truth be told, no. Christ, he suffered reproach to help others and was willing to time and time again bear under things that, well, we oftentimes crumple underneath and go, well, I'm done. No, Christ came into this world and suffered reproaches. And so it's just a reminder to us that even sometimes as we're looking to build others up and help them out, that sometimes you'll suffer hurt. And you go, so do I just stop? No. Christ was willing to go all the way to Calvary uh, to die, to give us what we ultimately needed to be built up. And so for us, as we go through this, that every believer has a responsibility to please their neighbor by building him or her up. But you see in verse number four, that it also says this, that every believer has been given scripture to be able to accomplish this unity. You're not left on your own going, well, how do I help somebody else out? And how can I benefit them and and be an encouragement to them and and be able to do all of this? Because in verse number four, just after this quote of Psalm 69, 9 was used by the Apostle Paul uh, in the middle of his argument here, he has this kind of an aside. Some have suggested that maybe verse four should be in parentheses because he kind of gives an aside on what he just did. You need encouragement. You need help in doing something. Well, God's given you something. It's called the Bible. It's called the Scriptures. I mean, the Old Testament Scriptures, verse number four, it says this, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, written in the Scriptures, were written for our learning. 
We have a whole Bible, and at this time when Paul was writing, they only had the Old Testament. So when he's referring to those things that were written, it's the Old Testament. Do you realize that the whole of the Old Testament is for your learning? Every part of it. There's not certain sections of it you just kind of go, ah, you know, no, not worth it. That book doesn't seem to be any help to me. I was reminded of this just this past week. We were going through the book of Esther in, in school and uh, with the seniors and just going through that and what that book's value is. You realize that book, uh, as you read through it, has no mention of the name of God in it at all. God's not there. You read through it, and even the characters don't really seem to refer to what he is and who he is and all of that. And you read through the story, and you're just going, what's the value of that? God's not even mentioned. Well, you go through that story, and what you find is that God can take people that probably aren't really in the place that they should be at, and he can take people who are stubborn and wild. King Ahasuerus is a king known in history as Xerxes, and he was a wild, uncontrollable maniac. You didn't know if he was going to be happy and an instant later ready to take uh, your head off your shoulders. And how God could take all of the individuals like that and work all these things out behind the scenes and make things happen and accomplish his purpose in saving the Jews, the nation that he promised that he would protect. And God does this. And you kind of go, well, that's kind of like what God does right now. He's not working by overt miracles, and he's not doing those type of things where it's obvious to the world, oh, well, that's a supernatural miracle there. A no, God is taking people and moving them in certain locations and having certain events and circumstances happen, and he's getting things organized. He's, as the Bible might be described, that God is showing his providence. He's seeing things beforehand and providing what he needs to get things accomplished and take care of his purposes. And you see that in the book of Esther. It's a book that doesn't even have the name of God in it, but it's there for our learning. And there's a whole lot of other books there in the Old Testament that are for our learning. You say, well, what can I learn from it? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us what you can learn from the Scriptures, even the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. What can you find in it? Well, that we can, as we find at the end of verse 4, that through patience and comfort of Scriptures, we might have hope. The scriptures, you realize this, that word patience there, you could underline it and put it off to the side. It's the word that's normally translated endurance. Like someone who's bearing up under a heavy weight and moving forward, much like young men moving a piano and moving forward. Not just bearing up underneath it. So it is, there are things in life that we just bear up underneath and continue forward and move forward in life. And you go, are there things in Scripture that God gives us that can give us the ability to endure? The answer is absolutely. There's things that gives us, gives us strength where we look forward to that this life is not the only thing. Heaven's something to look forward to. The glories of it, what we have to look forward to. This life, though it's short, sometimes three score and 10, 70 years, sometimes 80 years, if the Lord's so gracious to be pleased with us and give us that kind of life, that there is something to look forward to. So you go, what happens if life in this, in this time is so difficult? Is this it? The answer is no. 
You have something to look forward to. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what Christ has given to you. I mean, you can have endurance, the ability to bear under certain things and understand certain truths as you read it. And not only that, uh, you can have endurance, but you can also have comfort. That's the word uh, that we find translated as a noun, the word comforter. Remember what the Holy Spirit was called by the Lord when He goes, I'm going away and I'm going to give you a comforter. And you go, what does that word comforter mean? It's one who comes alongside to help, to encourage, to admonish, to challenge. That we can find solace and comfort in the Scriptures. And there are times where we go to the Scripture and life is really bearing us under and you go to the Scriptures and you just start reading. More often than not, when that happens, people turn to the Psalms and just go, what does the Psalms have to say? Much like Psalm 69 was used by, the Psalm, or by David here this morning by Paul here this morning in Romans so it is that we can go and look at the scriptures and find encouragement comfort challenge and that the scripture is able to do that for us and there may be at times as we're ministering to people and it's a little bit more difficult to work with them it's not going quite the way that we think it is well there's comfort in the scripture it's God's gift to us that we have been provided with us I mean, we're reminded in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And it says all Scripture, profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof. And you go, what do we need reproof for? Because sometimes we're not right. We might think that we're right in our own minds and we need to look at the Scripture and find out there are times where we're not. And what the Scripture does, it reproves us. But also you find this, that the Scripture is given for correction and it tells us how to get us back on the path of where we need to go, what we need to be doing. It corrects us. And then it repeats this over and over again as the Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That word instruction is the idea of child training. When you train a child, you don't, you don't normally tell them one time and they get it. What the Scripture does is repeatedly over and over and over and over again, like we're children, and it reminds us of certain things, and then we finally get the truth, and you're like, oh, okay, I've got it. I understand uh, what's going on here, uh, that the Scripture gives us these things, and then ultimately what the Scripture does when you have all of this, the Apostle Paul mentions there in Second Timothy chapter 3, that the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You've got everything that you need to do what you're supposed to be doing. You've got all the equipment that you need in the Scripture to accomplish the good work that you need to be accomplishing in the life of others. And so what the Apostle Paul just simply notes there is you're working with other people that aren't quite where you're at and may need help and strengthening in their faith and their belief. You're going to at times need to just get your encouragement from looking at the Word of God. Your strength from that. But ultimately what you find is this in the end is that None of the unity and none of, none of good is going to happen without God being a part of it. See, what you find in verses 5 and 6 is this, is that you, you kind of get this tone that's a little bit different, and you go, what's going on here? Paul's praying. 
That's what you have in verses 5 and 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind, one mouth, glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's making a prayer for the church at Rome. He's acknowledging there are people in your church that are strong. There's others that are weak. And what you're supposed to do is that you're supposed to get together and help each other out. And that not that you have a bunch of what we might say lone rangers, individuals that are in this church that are going through life on their own. No, what you have is this body that people can see. You know, think about the, all the words used to describe the church, but you have the idea of a body is sometimes a term that's there, or a family, or a fellowship. We have things in common. That's what the church ought to look like, but it doesn't happen by accident. There's someone who's working behind the scenes to help us be unified. I mean, we may have all of these things where we have the, the teaching and the understanding of Scripture, and we might know what's right, and we're trying to help other people, but if God's not behind it, there is going to be no unity. For the Apostle Paul, he looks at this and he prays for this church at Rome as he thinks of some of the people that are there and some of the strengths they have, some of the weaknesses they have, and some of the people in that congregation and the differences that they have. Different races, different backgrounds, different social standings, all of those things. And the Apostle Paul says this, that the God of patience and consolation, well, that's, we get the Scripture and that's what we're just told the Scripture gives us because God, who's the author of those Scriptures, is the God of all patience and consolations, grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, you have this statement, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and then it goes through and lists what Christ did, and coming down and taking upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, what we do is that as believers, we ought to be praying, God, give us patience and give us consolation that we would, as a congregation, get together and be like-minded because we're focused on Christ, not on itself. Not about what I'm going to gain. No, on what Christ is able to do for us. See, you find that the believers can be unified, you see in verse 6, in mind, and in mouth. We as a congregation coming from all the backgrounds, length of terms, I would say, of salvation. Some have been saved, you know, five years. Some have been saved for 40 years. Some have grown up uh, as a child uh, in the Scriptures, and others or as adults, they became saved. They come from different backgrounds of religious backgrounds and worldviews, and yet what God is able to do in the church is that He allows a body like this with people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, jobs, social status, He's able to bring them together and they can think generally alike. And when they get together, they're voicing their praise to God and it's not that they're at strife with one another, they're angry with one another. No, their focus is on Christ. And in ultimately magnifying Christ, they will do what the end of verse 6 says. 
They will glorify God. They will bring glory to God. See, what we desire in a church, and trust uh, that that's the case, is that you are thinking through that why do we have a church body here? Why are we working with one another? So when individuals come in, they can come in and go, that is a body. That's a family. And what are they, what are they all focused on? What's their goal? Oh, to magnify God. It's not for them to be seen as individuals, though you have individuals who are responsible for different things and do that. But by the time people get done, they realize when they come into a body that's unified, where the strong is helping the weak, and you have all these different people that are gathering together, and they're like-minded because God is working in their midst, they can go, wow, that church is all about magnifying God that they and you say what does it mean to glorify or glorify God it just means to make God big it's like taking a telescope and looking at the planet Jupiter it looks really small but when suddenly you take the telescope and you look through that you're going whoa this is really big and that's what the church ought to be doing is that we as a body are getting together on a Sunday and Sunday nights and Wednesdays and other occasions that we get together and people can come in and go, they're, they're all about God. That's why they get together. They're trying to let people know what God's like uh, and understand what that's like. And that's their goal in life, that they're doing this. They're glorifying him. You say, how does that happen? It doesn't happen by our own strength. To him says, the arm of flesh will fail you. If we attempt to keep unity by our own ability and by our own talents and try and keep uh, a, a unified front in this church, it will fail. It's only by the grace of God and the strength that he gives that he keeps us together. The Apostle Paul knew that. He goes, you've got the scripture and you've got people that are trying to follow Christ, but ultimately you need God to be a part of this equation to keep the unity, to keep you glued together in one mind and with one voice praising God that this ought to be what takes place. So my question for you this morning is not whether you're one of the strong or one of the weak or you, you gauging that. My question for you is this. Do you pray for the unity of this church? Paul did. Paul prayed for this church that he hadn't even met yet. Realize that he had not been to Rome yet. He knew about this church, but he had never been there. And he's praying that they would remain unified and that God would be behind the scenes binding and winding hearts together and minds together so that they could be a testimony and magnify who he was. We need to be praying that God would preserve the peace and the unity that we have. That doesn't mean that we don't ever, well, perhaps talk to each other and work through certain things that perhaps aren't right. We do that. But behind the scenes, there's got to be the God of peace who's bringing unity to be part of our congregation. And that as we go through in the years ahead, that we can just simply say God has been magnified. And it's not because of we're 
great people and we're fantastic and we're all strong. No, we've all got our weaknesses and frailties. But God has played a role in this and He can be seen in what has gone on where brother and sister are getting along with one another and they're taking care of things and they're growing to look more like Christ and people go, that's a place where God is clearly seen by the interactions of the people that are going on in that church. And that ought to be the case. Including this morning, I just wanted to do something a little bit different in our conclusion this morning, and it's just simply this. I asked, uh, yeah, I have asked two men to come up this morning, and just simply in closing of the sermon, pray that God would give us unity as a church that he would continue to show his mercy and grace to all of us, but that we would be unified, not because we're all working really hard at unity, that we should be doing, but that God will be gracious to us and continue to keep us unified, that we are of one mind, of one voice, giving God praise. So I've asked Steve uh, to come up here, and then Jim, after that, if you men could come up and uh, pray here this morning. Uh, that the Lord would grant us uh, unity as a church body here uh, at Heritage uh, in the years ahead. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together as some in the world are not able to gather together this morning. We praise you for the building and the facilities that we have, the comfort we have, the camaraderie we have between all of the members here. Lord, we are all trying to be like Christ, and we thank you for the model that you are and have been for us. We thank you for the love that you show to each of us every day and to the church in uh, unity. We represent one of many churches in this world, Lord, that are striving to do the same. And I pray that we would do our part to uphold our end and to glorify you, as Pastor has mentioned. Thank you for the many members and the varied members and uh, the different parts of this body. I pray that it would be complete at all times and that we would represent all of the parts of the church body that need to function and edify one another and help us to edify one another and lift each other up and demonstrate our love for you by demonstrating that love toward each other. So we thank you. We love you. We want to be like Christ. Help us in that endeavor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with uh, love of heart and soul to you, praising you for your love for us and for your blessed and wonderful gift of salvation. We would ask, Lord, this morning that you would unify us, that you would give us the faith to work together, to set aside our desires, that you would grant us desire to be like-minded, to unify and seek you, God, and glorify you in all we do. We pray for wisdom, for guidance, and for blessing. 
may we go forward. May you open new doors for us. We pray that this would be all be done to glorify, and uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.